Take your seats, movie fans. The film is about to start. Welcome to Craft Disservices, the show where we look back at the bad films of cinematic history. That is the movies that critics rejected, but audiences embraced. I'm your host, Aaron Coker. I'm also the host of the Just Enough Trope podcast on this, the Just Enough Trope podcast network. If you've got a favorite pop culture topic, Just Enough Trope has a podcast about it. You can find out more at justenoughtrope.com. I'm joined once again on this episode by Melissa F. Olson. Melissa is the author of Dead Spots and the Scarlet Bernard series, as well as the Boundary Magic series and the Nightshades series. Her newest novel, Boundary Haunted, will be out in December. Melissa, welcome back to the show. Thank you so much for having me back. Uh, I'm glad that my passionate feelings about Congo, you know, didn't deter you from having me back again forever. No, it is great to have you back. <laughs> and it is uh, one of the reasons I love having you on the show, uh, other than you being a great uh, conversation partner, is that you push this premise to the limit every time you come really, on. It's yeah. some it's some new film that I uh, had always myself sort of relegated to the crap bin of cinematic history. But of course, this show is all about re- diving into that bin up to the elbows and reevaluating some of these movies that just got... Uh, set aside by fans or by critics. Mm. And Congo definitely fits that description. Oh, yeah. And Last Action Hero, I think, de- uh, fits that description, too. Oh, yeah. But but we're talking about something, something a little different this time. We are, uh, and we'll dive into that uh, in just a little bit. Uh, first up, I wanted to ask you about the TED Talk that you did recently. Oh, thank you. Uh, about, about the uh, friendship paradigm. How did you get involved with that? Okay, so... It was it was being sassy on Twitter. <laughs> okay, all right. <laughs> Little did you know that if you're sassy and no, okay. So what happened was, I complain on Twitter like normal, you know, Twitter users. And one of the things that and and here's the thing about Twitter: you never know what people will like. When sometimes <laughs> I'll think I'll, I'll craft a tweet and I'll think that was so clever. People are gonna love this, and right. it'll get like two likes. And, and one of them, and they're both like good friends of mine who pity me. Um, but so this, this one time I was reading this book and I got, and as often happens when I read books by male authors, I got kind of disgusted about how he was writing a female character. And, uh, and I wrote this tweet and I'm paraphrasing, but it was like signs that you're reading a book written by a man. Uh, in this book, a woman just accepted $500 in an envelope. She put it in the front pocket of her jeans and then she sat down. <laughs> right. And and that that was the tweet. But then I kept going because I, you know, historically don't know when to stop ever. Uh and so and and you know, I was just it, it turned into this long rant on um pockets and how women's apparently this is a big like cultural raw nerve that women's clothes don't have pockets that you can actually yeah. put things in. And, right. and, you know, so this tweet, this Twitter thread went on and on. Bustle wrote an article about it. Um, it got <laughs> like, I don't even remember. It was, it was the, something like 50,000 likes and it, it went viral. And, and it was fun because while it was happening, you know, people wouldn't just like it and retweet it. They would comment and I would write back. And right. so one of the people who commented and who I wrote back was a um, a Canadian man named Rick Talbot, who was putting together, little did I know at the time, was putting together this TED event. And so he got back to me, you know, he enjoyed the discourse 
which is a very elevated word for anything that happens on Twitter. On Twitter. <laughs> uh, he enjoyed the discourse. And so like a couple of months go by, I've moved on with my life from, you know, Pantsgate. And he says, hey, I'm, I'm doing this TED Talk thing. Do you want to do a TED Talk about how men write women? And I said, uh, of course I do. <laughs> and so I started to dig into doing a TED Talk on how, how male writers write female characters. And it quickly became very apparent to me that any talk that I would do about that would break all the rules of TED Talks. Because Interesting. What are the rules of TED Talks? TED Talks cannot be negative. They can't oh. be disparaging. And you can't like and they're subject to like libel laws. So oh, okay. even to show this tweet and, you know, later on in the tweet, I kind of quoted the book in, in more specific terms. And so okay. it was not difficult. And, and I never called out the author who wrote it by name because my whole point here was that male authors often put very little consideration into how they write women. If this was the only right. dude on the planet who was writing like this, I would happily call him out. But it's a very common problem. Yeah. But if I were to do a TED talk about that, he could sue me. And um and and more importantly, it probably TED has to approve all those talks, every single talk. They get to approve them, the TED organization. Mm. So then there was a couple months where it was like, you know, the by then Rick had, had, you know, he, he liked me. He, he thought I had some good ideas, but we were really stymied on, well, what am I going to talk about? And this was, um, you know, we went, we did some back and forth and talked about canceling it entirely. And I said, well, what are the things that I can speak on as, you know, at a at kind of a professional level? And one of yeah. them is storytelling and another is being the parent of a child on the autism spectrum i mean those are two things at which i am you know i would say if not expert level at least i play at expert level even though i'm probably not you know talented enough so right. yeah so um so i i it again took a long time of me doing research and kicking ideas around and then i kind of hit on this idea that uh, on this notion that we we love stories about found families or stories about, you know, a loner character who looks around or who, you know, embarks on some sort of quest or an adventure. And during that process, they find these friends that become like their forever friends. Right. And, it, and, and that story is great. And I love it. And I'm certainly, you know, have written many books that would fall into this category. But the problem is that when you are a child who is socially awkward, who for any, you know, any reason at all, doesn't have a lot of friends and struggles to make friends or keep friends, that's actually an incredibly painful thing to have sort of force fed you all the time. And I looked at just you know, a lot of the, you know, my daughter loves Percy Jackson, but Harry Potter is this story. How to Train Your Dragon is this story. Um, most Pixar movies, you know, it's the the loner who finds their forever friends. We we feed it to people so much that it almost becomes like a promise. And so then it hurts when you don't have friends of that caliber mm -hmm. in your life. 
I'm sorry, that was a much longer explanation than I think you were really hoping for. No, no, that but, was perfect. <laughs> but that's, you know, so it was a very roundabout journey to the topic. Um, but once once I kind of hit on this, and, you know, it was a hard topic to find just because it's so common. You know, this yeah. this sort of, it's I wouldn't even call it a genre of storytelling. I'm not sure you, I mean, you'd be the expert of whether or not it's a trope. Uh, oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's baked into these kind of stories. It is. It is. And especially young adult and middle grade novels. Um, yeah. And, and the stories. And, and as much as I love stories like this, I just feel, and I argue in the TED Talk, that we need alternatives. And, yeah. you know, and I kind of mentioned some things like stories about like teamwork, alliances working, you know, interacting with people and maybe not necessarily walking away the best of friends forever and ever. Actually, one of my favorite examples is The Magic School Bus because, you know, that's a show for children. And right. it's it's obviously, it's not about conflict between the kids. They, they're all, they know each other. They Some of them are friends. Some of them are just kind of acquaintances. They all kind of roll their eyes at Arnold. Oh, Arnold. <laughs> at the same time, you know, they work together to, you know, solve these science quests. Sure. Know? And and they team up and they recognize that it's okay to like kind of be fr- be friendly and maybe not be, you know, friends for life. Right. I think I use ri- the phrase ride or die at least twice in that TED Talk. <laughs> That's got to be some kind of record. I want to see somebody break down the social politics of Mrs. Frizzle's uh, classroom. I know, right? Well, <laughs> it is such an interesting dynamic on that show. Have you watched the new show with uh, no. Kate McKinnon? So they uh-uh. rebooted it with Kate McKinnon as Miss Frizzle, which is just like two great tastes that taste great together. Um, <laughs> and it's, I mean, it's incredibly similar to the to the show that I and probably you, you know, kind of grew up on. Um, mm. But, but in both cases, it's, it's, you know, a group of kids that, that work together and they are, some of them are closer than others. And, you know, they all kind of, one of them is more socially awkward. A couple of them are socially imperfect. You know, there's, there's a lot of social perfection in children's television where everyone gets along perfectly. There's no real conflicts and um, no one's ever awkward. So, yeah. That's just it's it's something that I've noticed, and I hope that enough writers will find that show to maybe start thinking of what other kinds of friendships or whatever other kinds of relationships can I create that will help kids like my daughter um, understand that it's okay if she doesn't have ride or die friends when she's ten years old. Well, it's a fascinating subject, and it's a very touching uh, talk as well. So people should definitely check it out. I'll leave a link in our show notes to you. the YouTube link for that. Yeah, uh, I wanted to ask you before we got rolling here, as the author of the Old World series, urban fantasy, and I guess nominally uh, horror stories, what do you think about the state of scary movies right now? Um, of course, the Bloomhouse brand yeah. of, kind of low-budget scary movies is out there. Um, a lot of ghost stories, The Conjuring, and thing like things like that. Um, are you uh, enjoying the current slate of horror films? That's a great question. Um, I don't get to watch as many as I would like um, because mm. my husband, whom I love very much, is a crybaby pee pants. Really? <laughs> yes. Um, it's okay. He probably won't listen to this. Um, if he does, I'm not saying anything I haven't said to his face. Sure. Uh, 
<laughs> he does not care for horror. So my my thinking on horror is, first of all, I love that horror does what horror wants. You know, I think a lot of yeah. other I think a lot of other genres kind of follow trends. And horror is always going to be about what we're afraid of. So there's always a social component um, to the horror. The novel I'm working on right now is a horror novel. So I've actually been studying horror, the genre more, and I've been reading mm. more. Um, I recently read, uh, speaking of men who don't write women well, I recently read Stephen King's Dance Macabre, okay, which is okay. sort of his treatise on the horror genre from 1950 to 1980. Yeah. And, um, and, and I've been looking at that a lot. And when one of the things that King says, in Dance Macabre, and he is referring very specifically to the 1950 to 1980 period. But he says that horror, horror back then, is about looking for the mutants and like f- finding the finding the the monsters and getting rid of them. Um, so, in in horror of that time, it was all about you know look for the mutants and get and and purge the world of them, and and that's what we do and. Now I think horror is look for the mutants and and it, it is us. Or identify with them. Identify with them, or even you know they're more the hero now. I think that that hmm. that that the scary other has become something that we identify with much more than we do, you know, the perfect post World War II cookie cutter suburbia. Yeah. Um. I, I like that horror does its own thing. I wish they would stop recycling. Um, yeah. Stephen King has some great stories, but we have too many Stephen King movies. And I would much rather be seeing, you know, film or television adaptations from fantastic female horror writers like Anya Alburn or Sherry Priest than mm-hmm. be getting yet another version of, you know, it or whatever graveyard pet cemetery you know there's there's just the the remakes thing is frustrating and now they're remaking the grudge and that is baffling i just saw that trailer the other day and was like wait what yeah the thing that confuses me about the grudge franchise and and i i've only seen a couple of the movies but then i was reading about all of them and and the entirety of this franchise is so if there's a really violent murder, the house is cursed or, or wherever it happened is cursed. And anyone yeah. who goes in it will die the same way. And, right. and, and that is literally the foundation of like 55 movies. OK, it's like 18. <laughs> OK, it's like 15, but it's a it's a shit ton of movies. It's a lot. Yes. It's a lot of films are based on this premise. And I'm like. You guys, logistically, this just does not work out. No one has crunched the numbers on this. Do you know how many violent deaths there are in, like, Chicago or New York? Right. But were they on uh, Indian burial mounds or something like that? No, no. That, no, no. It's just the whole, the whole mythology is if it's, a really, if it's a really intense violent death, then anyone who walks into the house has the same curse. That, <laughs> that's the entirety. That's it. That's the whole thing. And... Not only do the numbers just not line up, but at the, at some point, I feel like those movies are so boring because once once a character walks into the house, you just know they're going to die. And now we're waiting. <laughs> right. Yeah. And, and 
those movies are like vignettes. It's like five or six different little mini stories in one movie. Like five or six people walk into the house and then, oh, guess what? They all die. Yeah. That's literally, I, I have just spoiled every single grudge movie and, and there's like 50 of them. So <laughs> there's a wild and insane amount of grudge movies and I've just ruined them all. And so they're remaking the grudge and this just, just why? Well, it's about time, I suppose, in terms of just the the, the uh, nostalgia cycle. Yeah. See, there only needed to be one grudge movie, and we get it. <laughs> stay out of the house, right? Like stay out <laughs> of the house. And and so the suspense from those movies basically becomes: Will that person? Like you watched the trailer. There's a moment in the trailer where it like zooms in on somebody's foot at the threshold. Yeah. So that- and that's literally the that's the entire suspense, because yeah. it's the house that's it they're dead. Like, yeah, <laughs> well, people dying in horror movies is is kind of expected. I was always surprised. I've never actually seen any of the Insidious movies, but when the sequel started coming out and I saw the same faces on the poster, yeah, uh, Patrick Wilson and Rose Byrne or whatever, I'm like, wait, they don't die? Isn't the family supposed? How do these people keep surviving through all these subsequent sequels in this series? You know, I've seen the first two Insidious movies. I remember thinking the first one was great and the second one was fine. But here's what Mm. I absolutely love more than anything else about Insidious. In that movie, Rose Byrne is home alone with the baby all day. And, you know, her husband, Patrick Wilson, goes to work. And she keeps hearing this this creepy stuff happening, you know, and the baby monitor is, is creepy stuff. And she says to her husband, listen to me, we have to move. The house is haunted. <laughs> and you know what? He moves. Really? <laughs> yeah. Okay. He believes his wife. Do you know how rare that is in a horror movie for the wife to be like, honey, we have to go. The house is haunted. And for the husband to be like, pack your shit, woman. We're out. <laughs> like, he's not sure he believes her, but he also just trusts her enough so that sure. when she says, Something is wrong here. We have to go. He's like, okay, let's do it. And so ever since that movie came out, my husband, the crybaby pee pants, he and I have an understanding that like, if if one of us actually believes that the house we're living in is haunted, we're just, we're just going to move. Like we're going to take a bath <laughs> on the sale and we're going to move. Well, the name of this show is Craft to Services, and on every episode of the podcast, we usually look at a film that is poorly rated, uh, generally lower than 50% on Rotten Tomatoes, but one that's well-remembered by audiences at large. But today's film has a more complicated history. It's been called one of the worst films of all time, yet it has a staunchly loyal fan following. It's the first live-action adaptation of a video game to film, but its failure is often credited with single-handedly souring Nintendo on licensing more of their properties and characters for films, they wouldn't make another video game adaptation until this year, 2019's Detective Pikachu, long after other publishers and film studios had proven the viability of video game adaptations. The film we're talking about is, of course, Super Mario Bros., the 1993 film adaptation of Nintendo's 1985 video game of the same name, starring Mario and Luigi, the titular Mario Brothers, and their quest to free the princess and save the Mushroom kingdom but is super mario brothers as bad as everyone claims it is or is it an inventive effort that was a victim of its own creative aspirations and before we dive into the discussion of the film are you a video gamer um i am a mario gamer i i'm a side-scrolling fan 
Yeah, yeah. I think I think film I think video games have gotten too advanced for me. And I also find it frustrating that now I, I find cutscenes very frustrating and boring and that's oh, yeah. so much of video games now. Um yeah. but I cut my teeth on Mario. Like I grew up hard on Super Mario Land, the 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 game that this film is specifically inspired by. This film is also just before I get any ads, uh, based on the uh, 1990 game Super Mario World as well. I oh mention. right, no, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I misspoke. It is Super Mario World, which is where uh, Yo yeah, Yoshi is introduced. Yeah, yeah, that's a great game too. Uh, video games and video game movies uh, have proven themselves to be a profitable franchise. Even in the 90s, like the Street Fighter and the Mortal Kombat films are both doing well. The Pokemon movie, uh, Pokemon the first movie, is arguably a video game movie, and it did very well in 99. But they aren't very successful critically. In fact, the first video game adaptation to even break 50% on Rotten Tomatoes was Tomb Raider, which came out in March of 2018 and had a score of 52. And then later in 2018, Rampage came out in April of that year uh, with a score of 51. And the first video game film to even reach freshness, that is being above 60% on Rotten Tomatoes, was Detective Pikachu, which came out in May of 2019 with a score mm. of 68 and was followed shortly after by Angry Birds 2, which came out in August and got a review of 73% on Rotten Tomatoes. And I didn't see that one because I heard that, you know, when the Angry Birds game was an, or movie was announced, I think everybody kind of rolled their eyes. Yeah. And I think the movie did uh, pretty much met everybody's expectations. But apparently the second one's pretty good. The first one's actually pretty good. And I, I say that very reluctantly. Because uh, <laughs> on this show that you have joined yeah. to talk about Super Mario Brothers, you say that that's real. OK, that's reluctant. No, no. Angry Birds should not have been a good movie. Like it's based on nothing. You know, right. I mean, it's based on literal geometry. That's what Angry Birds is. Uh, so it should not have been a good movie at all. And it's flipping fantastic. And they just got a great cast. They got some some very talented writers they managed to form a cohesive sort of mythology it has it has world building which is crazy to say so huh. um i i saw it in theaters because i have kids and yeah, they liked yeah. and my older daughter really liked angry birds at the time so we did go see it and it was one of those where i expected you know to be put be you know miserable as happens often when i go to children's movies with my children but uh it was it was really good and angry birds 2 is also good but i do think that the first one is much better um and and speaking of which you know back in january and the, and the reason i think i i can't remember if i pitched super mario brothers the movie to you or if you were looking for things or what but back in january my nine-year-old, she was nine at the time, she's 10 now, just out of nowhere, we were sitting around, we were looking for a movie for family movie night. And she goes, you know what I wish? That there was a Super Mario Brothers movie. Uh oh. <laughs> and my husband and I just exchanged this very complicated look. Um, okay. and, and in that look was the question, because we are not above pretending things do not exist. Like my children, I do not think my children know there's a third sto Toy Story movie. Okay. Um, and as God is my witness, they will never learn about Jurassic Park 3. Uh, no, of course, I mean, you know, within my power. But anyway, so like we could have skated past this moment. You know, we could have just said, yeah, that'd be great someday and, and changed the topic. But but we, we did the complicated look 
And and his face said, as it so often does, you figure it out, honey. <laughs> and I said, actually, there is, but it's a bit strange. And so we, so then we went to Amazon, you know, figuring we would rent it and stream it right away. Nope, it was not available. I don't know if it is now, but you can buy the DVD for a whopping $3.99. <laughs> right, yeah. So two Amazon Prime days later, we, we, we did watch the movie and I actually live tweeted the, the watching of this film. Really? That's great. Yeah. Uh, and by live tweeting it, I discovered that there is a whole subsection of Twitter that is obsessed with this movie. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Did you find the hashtag? Uh, what, what's the hashtag? The hashtag is trust the fungus. Oh, right. Yes, of course. Uh, there is an account that is specific. There's a, a, a Twitter account devoted to the movie. The hashtag yeah. is trust the fungus. And yeah. and and yeah, so I, I did not know. I did not know any of this until my this fateful day when we watched the film. Yeah, they have a website, too, uh, at smbmovie.com that I actually drew upon to do a lot of research for this show. So thanks mm -hmm. to them. <laughs> I should say uh, before we get into this that we talk a lot about Rotten Tomatoes on the show, but this podcast is not in the pocket of Big Tomato. We don't endorse <laughs> Rotten Tomatoes. We just use it as a metric in this case. I should say that, um, you know, you have to, your love of the movie <clears throat> and my growing love of the movie um, notwithstanding, you have to uh, interface with the fact that it's you know, critically reviled as many oh, video yeah. game movies are. Uh, and Dearly Departed, or depending on how you feel, Just Departed film critic Roger Ebert famously said that video games could never be art in a blog post in 2006. His main argument was that the level of interactivity in the narrative of a game meant that a game could never be what he thinks of art as, an unalterable statement by the artist that the viewing public would have to confront and interpret. And as you'd imagine, he got some letters over that. Uh, <laughs> thank God Twitter was in its infancy then, uh, RIP as mentions. But he did eventually walk that statement back after conversations with gamers, not to fully retract it, but essentially to say that it was presumptuous of him to try and pass judgment on a medium that he was unfamiliar with, and also to declare flatly that games could never be art, uh, perhaps in the future. If he had simply said, video game movies will never be good, he might have found less detractors to that statement. Yeah. Why do you think that video game movies are reviled critically, generally? Well, I think it's because most of them are bad. <laughs> Just straight up, like, technically bad. Yes. and and here's But here's why. I think that a lot of video games are built on a very good hook. Woman wakes up in a huge mansion, has no idea who she is, and there's weapons everywhere and zombie monsters trying to kill her. Great yeah. hook, you know? Um, yeah. uh, Tomb Raider, literally the hook is right there in the name. She raids tombs, great yeah. hook. <laughs> right. um, there are so many, and, but when you play a video game, it, you're, you're not moving in, in a, a straight line story-wise. You know, you mm -hmm. don't have beginning, mm -hmm. middle, end. You have uh, a great hook, and then you wander around with that right. within that hook. And you you have to encounter dead ends and um, sort of narrative complications. But it but video games themselves do not have the classic three act structure at all. So yeah. I think that a lot of times 
filmmakers, when they make video game movies, they say, okay, here's this great hook. Now we should probably have lots of really good special effects because, you know, gamers like that kind of thing. And we've got to make sure that we include these five really great scenes that everybody loves from the game because those are winners. And and everybody's going to want to see them. They'll be mad if they don't see them. Oh, oh, and this boss, that one boss. Yeah, he should be in it too. Okay, screenwriters, (laughs) take those things, go put them in your blender and bring me back a screenplay. Right. (laughs) Um, And so you have a lot of really crappy, terrible movies um, with great hooks. You know? Yeah. Uh, I've heard video game development described as fi- – it's described in terms of the gameplay loop, like finding a 30-second or just a small you know, time interval loop where you do something as a player. It's very rewarding, and you've got that locked in. And then the rest of the development or the story writing is about disguising the fact that that's all the player is really doing is just continually doing that pleasing loop. And there's really no way that I can think of to – translate that to film unless it is having four or five action sequences that looked at objectively are very similar, but yet deliver some variation on something that's exciting. The matrix for instance is, you know, a lot of slow motion uh, gunfighting. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it and, just seems and like I've there's heard a, the, I've heard the matrix described as the best video game adaptation that wasn't actually based on a video game. I could see that. Yeah. But I do think that, you know, like anything else, it, the quality of a video game movie is all about how much we're willing to prioritize story and screenplay over things like great action sequences and cool, you know, callbacks to the video game. And not very many people or not very many filmmakers will really prioritize a cohesive story because they believe, and it's arguably in some way true, they believe that that's not necessary for a video game movie that in order to please gamers who is the target audience, you really only need, you know, these handful of elements. A checklist. Right. And I'm, and there are some people who love, you know, any video game movie because they love the video game. So, sure. so yeah, I think it's a, there's a lot of laziness, but I do not think that laziness is what happened to this film. (laughs) Interesting. (laughs) Have you ever been approached about having your work adapted as a game? Not as a game, no. Um, and and that's probably good. Oh yeah. It's just not my world. I don't know anything about it, and I would not. Yeah. I it, it's not something I'm that interested in learning. Mostly because my gaming, my own personal gaming evolution, ended at like the Super Nintendo. You're right, <laughs> Yoshi uh, eating eggs or or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, why did you want to talk about Super Mario Brothers today? Because this movie and. And I cannot emphasize this enough, is so freaking weird. <laughs> that is true. Like I jokingly called it uh, William G- William Gibson's Super Mario Brothers, the movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, because it really is. It is so steampunky, and but so like it's that that you know neuromancer world of or the Blade Runner world. I mean, it's it's Blade Runner as Super Mario Brothers, which someone thought was a good idea. Um, And there are just, man, every single day, someone went to a set. And and, and I read that, you know, this movie went way over budget and way over schedule. So that means that every day, the people in charge of this movie, the directors, they went to the set and they said, yeah, that's still a good idea. Yeah. (laughs) 
you start watching it and you know and i remember when i watched this with my kids and my husband you know the the kids are just watching and my husband and i we just kept grabbing each other and exchanging these looks of like did that just happen <laughs> yes like <laughs> no it, it, they can't and and no it just keeps happening and i was reading you know when i was reading about sort of the making of this film you know the the directors who were hired to run it um they are famously created max headroom yeah which is the perfect uh you can see that like the second the second i you know i read that i'm like oh yeah oh yeah i, I see that um but they were also looking for like a darker vibe along the lines of teenage mutant ninja turtles and batman and ghostbusters sure. Sure. Um, you know, there was a, an interview that said, yeah, Ghost, Ghostbusters was what we were aiming for. And first of all, why? <laughs> like, what a bizarre choice. Um, <laughs> and, and secondly, like the, the game itself is so kid friendly. You know, I mean, th there's a darker even even the like underground worlds are like very fun. You know, it's yeah. fun. And yeah. the movie, it just. It it is so odd. It is it, it it the tone is all over the place. But if you had to average out the tone, I think it would be this very Blade Runner kind of dystopian cyberpunk world. Yeah. Cyberpunk as, is the world I'm looking for. A word I'm cyberpunk. looking for here. Yeah, yeah. As as a parent, I'm you know, I'm sure that you've seen a lot of kids' movies and oh, yeah. you you see that kids' movies often try to deliver that lightness and kid-friendly stuff, but then try to have something for the adults in the audience, you know, um, a, a sort of wink, a, wink and nudge humor or just more mature themes. And I wonder if you could ever have made a Super Mario Brothers that was as light and fun as... Uh, as the video game, because nowadays, if there was ever a period like in between Super Mario Brothers and now or before Super Mario Brothers, because even with Super Mario Brothers, you're getting <laughs> Blade Runner with Super Mario. But now you've got like, say, the Dora the Explorer movie, and they didn't even try to deliver what's in. They immediately began sending up the film and the yeah. whole thing is sort of like making fun of what what Dora is. Well, you know, I think what you have to sort of go back to is what is the the Super Mario Brothers films um, because or, or I'm sorry the game what yeah. what is Super Mario Brothers and yeah. and fun the the fundamental like story here is these two bl plumbers go down a pipe and they're in another world and they need to rescue a princess from this tyrant king right yeah. like that's that's the plot of basically every game um, and the worlds that they travel through through are designed for gameplay you know mm -hmm. nobody nobody really was trying for like a really in-depth mythology when they created the mushroom kingdom they were Not like really. what would be fun to play and that yeah. you know that makes sense right. um but i do think that that's very different from like dora the explorer um which i did go see in theaters by the way the new film yeah. um <laughs> and and that's really just trying to be baby raiders of the lost ark <laughs> sure <laughs> and, you know, that's cool. But yeah. I, I, I do think that your earlier example of Detective Pikachu is a great example because like the Superman Brothers film, it is very focused on world building and creating a world. But mm. that world is very different from, it, it, I shouldn't say different, it's 
very distinct from the the game world of Pokemon. They weren't really trying to adapt Pokemon. They were yeah. sort of taking this one-off game, which was probably developed, you know, at the same time as the film, and and really just play with a small with a smaller story within that within yeah. that. So yeah. I, you know, Super Mario Brothers never had a, a hugely complicated storyline, um, and there was a lot of freedom that the filmmakers had to to develop it. They just made such bizarre choices with it. <laughs> it really I mean, did. the opening, the <laughs> opening scene is just, they don't even pretend. The opening scene is this juxtaposition of nuns in a, a nunnery receiving this this crying bundle and you think it's a baby, but nope, it's a giant ass egg. And right, then a baby yeah. hatches out of it, which, by the way, the nuns are fine with. Yeah, that they're cool. They're like nuns. You've you've just seen something that disproves all of your belief system. <laughs> uh, you've seen an infant hatch from an egg, and like the camera goes back and forth to like the stained glass windows with the religious iconography. Yeah. I know. <laughs> <laughs> And, and this is all. This is all after, immediately after a 16-bit uh, computer graphics sequence where we learn that uh, dinosaurs apparently had Italian accents uh, and lived in Brooklyn before the comet hits or the meteor hits. Naturally, yeah. yeah. Uh, but I mean, they they don't even pretend this is going to be a normal movie, you know? No, no. Right out of the gate, we've got nuns with an egg, and it's juxtaposed. Ugh juxtaposed with King Koopa trying to hunt this princess and wow and then Mario and Luigi and they're terrible plumbers Luigi well Mario okay and we need to say some things about Bob Hoskins in this movie we... <laughs> because like you know when I was reading about the, the the sort of making of the film and he didn't want to do this movie and they just kept sending him revision after revision until you know he agreed basically right. they the the studio wanted him because visually, has anyone ever been more Mario? It's pretty yeah, it's pretty good casting. It is it is, uh, but Mario is so awesome. I want him to be my brother, but also my dad. But also, I just want like hugs. It's very confusing for me, identity wise. <laughs> yeah. uh, like he's just he's so kind and uh, really skilled, and he's got this nobility. Uh, which is great. Like they really, they really fleshed out Mario in a way that, you know, makes him worthy of Bob Hoskins. And I respect that. And then Luigi, on the other hand, is bad at plumbing. He's terrible with women. He has no idea how to talk to a girl. He, he misses work because he decides to drive around based on his feelings Yes. About traffic instead of yes. any actual information or experience. Yeah. <laughs> like, he's just, he's he's the worst. And yeah. also, you know, yeah. And so, of course, he has a crush on Daisy, who is amazing. And maybe you would know from your research, was the character of Daisy invented for the film? Uh, she appeared in... A Super Mario Land, I believe, on the Game Boy uh, first as oh. the queen or the princess of a different kingdom. Later on, she got folded into the Mushroom Kingdom. Uh, so I think they were just going with, if it's going to be Luigi's love interest and not Mario's, uh. well, let's do Daisy instead of Peach. 
which is an interesting choice that, yeah. you know, you're well, yeah, because they have to go to dinosaur land. Yeah, but, well, they do. But yeah, Bob Hoskins is is the heart of the film. And then there's Fiona Shaw, who yes. <laughs> just uh, Fiona Shaw, um, the actress, is currently experiencing a bit of a renaissance because of yeah. her role on Killing Eve. And then she was also in um, the second season of Fleabag. Uh, right. So she's she's been getting a lot of prominence lately. But to me, Fiona Shaw will always be her character from this film. Because this was the first time I had ever seen her. And, you know, she plays, I would we say the, I, I don't know, girlfriend of King Koopa? Yeah. Um, she's she's if, almost if, like a Lady Macbeth. If, if Lady Macbeth were working against Macbeth instead of with them. Yeah. Um, he, if he's a, a gangster, she's sort of his mall or, or his second in command or something like yeah, that. Yeah. Yeah. But so her character, Lena, is is kind of power mad. And but every line she has in this film is perfection. Every delivery <laughs> is perfection. Like she is so she seems like she's having the best time making this movie. And I yeah. respect that. And apparently she ate real worms or at least put real worms in her mouth when they do the uh, the tequila shot scene at the uh, at the club. Ooh. And she's drinking yeah. those worms. Method. That's very method. Oh, absolutely. And you hear all the stories about everybody hating it and uh, yep. Hoskins Being and Lenzamo are getting drunk. And uh, and driving around in the van, and you never hear that Fiona Shaw was uh, was anything other than totally professional. Yes. Um, so anyway, I'm sorry. So back to your question. You asked why I wanted to talk about this movie. It was honestly this experience of we. I mean, this was one of this movie was on regular rotation at my house when I was a kid, and then I probably haven't seen it in at least fifteen or twenty years. And then we, my family, watched it again in in January, just kind of with. You know, when you watch something with your kids, you you sort of have fresh eyes on it, which is very fun. Right. Um, and just I I think that the the most perfect moment in this film is towards the end when the the Mario Brothers unleash a bomb on Koopa, but yeah. beca- but the bomb moves at the speed of an actual wind up toy, <laughs> so it it's walking toward Koopa forever right right? and it actually can walk up a wall which boy i don't remember from the video game uh it walks (laughs) up a wall and it walks upside down on this grate to you know get to koopa who is uh, on this like uh sort of bridge type thing and then through the the grate we see that his little his little sneakers the babam's little sneakers say reba right (laughs) To me, that is the pinnacle of the moment of this entire film because it is so bizarre and misguided and hilarious and tone. <laughs> and 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 it is like this cyberpunk bizarro nightmare that's incredibly enjoyable to watch. Yeah. I think my favorite scene in the film or moment of the film is when they first get to Dino Hatton and they're trying to figure out if this is like some street or some borough they haven't been to before in their own New York. A guy rides by on a bike, ring, ring, and then he just like hits the end of the walkway he's on and he just pitches 
He just pitches over and falls to the street below, and we never see that guy again. Never see him again. We never know <laughs> why he couldn't see the fence in front yes. of him. Uh, yeah. It, oh my gosh. It's that. That's the moment where you're like, oh, this is gonna be weird. All bets are off. Um, well, yeah. <laughs> we're uh, discussing, of course, Super Mario Brothers, which came out on May 28th of 1993. It's rated PG, has a running time of 104 minutes. It was developed by Hollywood Pictures, which is a production label of Walt Disney Pictures, similar to their Touchstone Pictures label. It was distributed by Buena Vista Pictures Distribution, which, of course, was Disney's film distributor. So this is technically a Disney film. It was not a success at the box office. It grossed around $21 million on a $48 million budget. And of course, as we've discussed, it was not a success critically either. It currently stands at 23% on Rotten Tomatoes. It does not have a Metacritic score, and it's at 4 out of 10 for its IMDb score. It was directed by then-husband and wife team Rocky Morton and Annabelle Jankel, and they got their start directing music videos for groups like Rush, The Talking Heads, and Elvis Costello. They also worked in design and computer graphics for film and videos, the traditional computer animations seen in uh, Costello's Accidents Will Happen video were designed by them. After that, they co-created with George Stone the character of Max Hedrum, as you mentioned, mm-hmm. who's portrayed by Canadian actor Matt Fuer- Fruer. I always get his name wrong. Fruer. They created and directed the original Max Talking Hedrum show, as well as the Channel 4 TV film, Max Hedrum, 20 Minutes into the Future, which was adapted into an American series that aired on ABC. And I feel like for possibly our younger listeners or even our less informed uh, older listeners, we might have to go over real fast what Max Headroom is. You know, and to be fair, I only know because when I was in film school, we watched it um, in one of my television classes. Really? The, um, we did. The BBC, the BBC the, movie? Of course. Well, I think we, wa- yeah, I think we didn't, and we didn't watch all of it. We watched about half of it. And even then, I mean, this would have been, what, 2004. It looked pretty, pretty dated. Well, yes, yes. But do you uh, want to go ahead you, and... Well, I could just real quick say that if you yeah. know what new Coke tasted like, then you probably know what Max Hedrum is, as he was mm. the spokesperson for Coke around that time. But yeah, it's just like, I think a lot of people had a lot of weird ideas about where the future was going. And so uh, Jankel and Morton came up with this guy that was ostensibly, you didn't really know what he was. They filled out his backstory in the TV show, but he was just a talking head, literally, played by Matt Frewer. And he would just do comments. It was sort of like a Friday night videos. He'd like introduce videos and do short skits and social commentary. And for some reason, like the swirling geometric background behind him and the sort of clips and and uh, uh, flubs in, in his, his speech just, just, I don't know, it just um, resonated with people. And uh, not the TV show, of course. Although I do own the TV show on DVD. I do re- really like the TV show. Well, yeah. And I, I mean, the, the the television show became much more of a, you know, satirical. It, it was very much a commentary on the concept of how television was running the world. Right. Um, and in in the show television literally runs the world i mean the this oligarchy of television networks is in charge of everything and the right. government is you know mainly exists to help the television networks um right. and and so they uh, i remember the the only real checks of power were were these journalists and so one of them doesn't he he die in the pilot and he becomes yeah, he's max a- headroom yeah, he's a roving journalist uh, who you know has his own. He's a guerrilla journalist, basically, and he is investigating a story. He hits his head, 
and mm-hmm. is, is brain damaged. But there is, it's a long story, but there is like a secret program or an experiment uh, that's sort of used to clone his uh, personality. He recovers. Yeah, they, and then they Max upload Hedrin, a copy of his brain. Yeah, yeah, right. And then Max the Hedrin sort of becomes a digital version of him. Yeah. Yeah. And and so then the, the title um, is is kind of a joke because the sign that he sees right before his death, because he, he hits his head trying to get out of a motorcycle and he sees this Max Headroom. Yeah. Um, <laughs> for maximum headroom, you know. And so anyway, that becomes <laughs> Which name. is weird because, yeah, when they developed the character, he was just introducing videos. Like, did they yeah. backform that or did the name originally come from they were just getting in their car in a parking garage? I and mean, went, Max Headroom. We- we could go down quite the rabbit hole on Max Headroom. But, um, but but it was part of the sort of cyberpunk, yeah, the, this sure. exploration of the future. And it's it's sort of hard for modern viewers to understand. But at this time, you know, the 80s and early 90s, there was no real internet. So the concept of the future, and especially like a future dystopia, was... Well, I shouldn't say there was no internet, but it wasn't what it is now. So the they really saw like Blade Runner and Max Headroom and, you know, the threats were from robots and androids and not being able to tell the difference and, te- you know, television and evil TV and predatory networks. capitalism. Yeah, right, yes. right. So it, it is about technology used in the service of dystopia, but pre- internet being what it is. So, you know, now this these ideas seem sort of quaint that, oh, you were afraid of TV networks? Yeah, <laughs> yeah I think we lost that one. the last time yeah. you watched a TV network? On well, a that's TV. true. That's true, yeah. You know, um, now, now the internet and streaming and cell phones and it's all that. But back then, this was, you know, the future. And so the, a choice was made somewhere along the line to take the Mario brothers and put them in one of these dystopian cyberpunk cyberpunk dimensions. Yes. And, which is a interesting decision to be, to be certain uh, that decision was made by producers, Jake Eberts and Roland Jaffe. Jake Eberts was a producer that worked on films like the howling chariots of fire, Gandhi, the killing fields and more. And Roland Jaffe was a producer and an Academy award nominated director. He directed the killing fields and The Mission, two really great movies. And they had this company called Light Motive, and they basically pitched to the president of Nintendo of America that we can do this film based on Mario. Um, they presented him with like a draft script, and he said, that sounds cool. Then Jaffe flew to Japan to talk to the president of Nintendo and basically made a deal for $2 million uh, to get the rights to use char- the character of Mario in a film although Nintendo would uh, retain the merchandising rights. And I think the argument was that why should we give our uh, very successful video game character to a small video uh, or a small production company? And I think the argument was that you'll have more control because you'll be dealing directly with us, uh, even though you know we are a subset of Disney. Um, and <laughs> like the, the film was... Um, Nintendo's never really commented on the film, its success... Uh, or failure. Um, I think it's interesting to note that the creator of uh, of the character of Mario, Shigeru Miyamoto, uh, said that he was. He, if you know anything about him, he's just he's that guy that like his older Japanese man who's always smiling on stage at an E three. <laughs> uh, he said that uh, 
it was a very fun project and they put a lot of effort into it. And he actually, it wasn't um, a critique, but he was just offering his opinion. He thinks that the movie tried to get too close to what the video games were. He thought that they should uh, let it out a little more. And I'm wondering yeah. if we watched the same movie because that's exactly what they did. Like they really did make it their own. You know, but what I what I took to mean is the there are so many sequences in the movie that kind of distract from the story because they become all about a, a woo ride. So like, remember when uh, they're driving the car and out into the like, I don't know, slime deserts and yes. and it goes on forever or the towards the end, there's this whole extensive scene where they're riding mattresses in a <laughs> elaborate yes. pipe system, which yes. PS looks so fun. Yes. And I would do it so fast. Um, and and so it, th- those scenes are very fun, but they don't really have anything to do with the story. It's more like a lot of video game adaptations where they try to make you feel as though, like, do you remember when the Doom video game movie came out? Yes, and yes, they, yes. They actually shot some of it in like first person, like right. where the, where you are the camera. And in order to hopefully make you feel more like the Doom video game. So like to me, I think that's maybe what he was referring to is these scenes where, you know, it it, it kind of stops the whole story to take us on this, you know, extended slide scene. Now we're doing a video game moment, right? Yes, exactly. Interesting. Uh, That's how I, because I I read his comments too, and I, I kind of saw it that way. But I mean... Man, dude, there is a lot more to comment on in this movie besides those scenes. <laughs> like, they, I mean, they really, the fungus. Yes. It, yeah. <laughs> and they turned it into, our king has been devolved into a fungus that's growing everywhere and yeah. also gives you presents. Yes, there, yeah, no kidding. There are so, there's so much creativity in this film. I mean, you can't argue that. And I don't know if it is solely down to any one particular contributor, over nine people, or around 10 people, I guess, worked on the script at different times. Apparently, the the initial screenplay or the initial draft was written by Barry Morrow, who was the Oscar-winning uh, screenwriter for Rain Man. And apparently, his draft of the screenplay was so similar to Rain Man, it featured a a road trip between two characters, you know, who are looking for themselves uh, that they called it Drain Man. So I'm not sure any of that made it to screen. Uh, the next scrap, a draft of the script was written by uh, Jim Ween and Tom Parker, who had worked previously on the film Stay Tuned, uh, and which is, I think is a pretty good film. And it's kind of similar to this in a lot of ways. Uh, and Major League Two and the Flintstones. And so that's kind of more, I think, in the lane of what you'd expect from something like this, um, satirizing fairy tale or video game cliches. Mm-hmm. Um and they've reported they were, they were influenced by the Princess Bride film. So we've got Princess Bride, we've got Rain Man, we've got all these different things that have nothing to do with what you'd expect uh, Mario Brothers to be about. Yeah, yeah. None of those have to do with this incredibly simple story of these two brothers falling apart. Right. Uh, Dick Clement and Ian Lafrenes were also uh, working on the script, and they brought a more mature tone to it. Uh, they were apparently going for uh, Mad Max-like undertones, which I think are still present in the film, especially in the um, radioactive desert uh, scenes that you mentioned. And apparently that was a script that convinced most of the principals to sign on for the film. Um, <laughs> the script that they showed to Bob Hoskins, for instance, and, uh, and made him say yes. 
but other than that, it's hard to know how it actually boiled down because I haven't even mentioned the credited screenwriters on yeah. the film yet. Uh, none of those guys got the credit. Uh, the credit no. is uh, Parker Bennett, Terry Runte, and additional work by Ed Solomon. And Bennett and Runte, this is pretty much their last screenwriting credit. They had previously wrote the 1991 Ethan Hawke movie Mystery Date. Uh, and that's about it. And then Ed Solomon, people would probably know, he got to start uh, co-writing Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure with frequent writing partner Chris Matheson. And he'd go on to write or revise films such as Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey, Men in Black, X-Men, Charlie's Angels, Now You See Me. And of course, he's writing the or has written the upcoming Bill and Ted Face the Music with yeah. partner Matheson. So he's more of a, a script doctor in this case. But yeah, it's hard. At the, and then, of course, um, you hear, uh, I've read a story about how once they started shooting or right before they began shooting, the studio came back and went, I don't know, guys, I think this has to be a little more light. This is like a kid's game. You've got this whole Mad Max thing going on. And so over the course of starting filming and then all through shooting, they are continually rewriting like daily to the point where Hoskins oh, yeah. and Dennis Hopper, who somehow we haven't mentioned yet, didn't even bother to learn their lines. You know, they called the script the rainbow script because of all the different pages with the rewrites. So, yeah, I mean, it's it's hard to know. It's no one person's vision uh, no. in a very uh, pointed way. Well, and I think that the one of the reasons that the tone is so all over the place um, is because it, it seems like each and every one of those screenwriters was writing to a different age group. You right. know, you you have the screenwriters who are tr clearly hoping to make money off of the adults who buy the tickets and who loved Blade Runner. Um, yeah. And then you have the the sort of draft that's aiming at those eight year olds and has these like, you know, extensive whooshing sequences where we're doing <laughs> something like a video game. Um, and, and then you have like these, this romantic subplot and the, the sort of the comedic elements. I mean, we got to talk about Iggy and Spike. Fisher Stevens um, playing, playing Iggy, who in the game was, I believe one of Koopa's actual children, but in the, in the film, I think they're cousins. Yeah. And these are the dumbest <laughs> yes men. Yeah. I don't know if you could even call them yes men because they're more like yes infants. And they have such an interesting arc, too, because they yeah. go from being dummies to getting really smart. And then suddenly yeah. they're all viva la re revolution. And yet they're kind of smart dummies. They're, they, yeah. uh, they, they never have street smarts. They just no, like no. intellectual. So they these two, they're almost. I, I don't want to quite say a Greek chorus because they're not usually commenting on the action. But the two of them. In every scene they're in, they're, they keep this this running dialogue going that's just like this patter, and it's yeah. very funny. Yeah. Um, and it's also very sort of charming and hilarious. I mean, they talk about, when, when they're talking about kidnapping the right princess, and they, yes. no, that's got to be her. She's got, what, two arms, two legs, a head? That's her. That's her. And yes. it's like, how did they not, how did they actually manage to find Princess Daisy? Like, how is, how did they not take thousands of women from people? Right. <laughs> Just clear it out in Manhattan, yeah. Before they got to Daisy. That's a pretty good odds for for them. But yeah, they're they're just, they're so very funny. And and yet they, they almost steal a lot of the scenes that they're in. Yeah. Um, and that was partially down to their own kind of, not ambition, but creativity. And as the movie was falling apart... Yeah. Fisher Stevens and um, Richard Edson plays uh, Spike, a character actor that 
probably best remembered as one of the parking attendants in uh, Ferris Bueller. Um, they just started sort of riffing on their own and they would just sort of come up with things and angles for their characters. And they ended up shooting an entire scene that was cut where they get drunk in a bar and do like a like a Koopa rap, uh, which is very critical of Koopa. And they just sort of wrote all that just in the downtime on the set by themselves. A set which I should mention was a de- decommissioned concrete plant in North Carolina. And I think we were talking about like the creativity but also, how do you shoot for weeks and weeks, and how do you go so over uh, budget and time on a movie? And I think it's partially because this facility had been used to shoot other films like Ninja Turtles and Terminator 2, but they basically converted it to that street that you see in uh, the Dino Hatton sequences. And then there were other sub-rooms and side parts of the factory where they had a effects lab set up and like a makeup lab set up. And so I think it's that kind of thing where you don't, you go in unprepared for something, but you have all these tools and then you end up staying there for, you know, 16 hour days and yeah. maybe developed a new thing or, hey, now I can make Yoshi do this. Let's like write a scene for that. And just oh, sort of I wanted so much more Yoshi. Place. Yeah, he was cute. Uh, apparently the producers of, I think the Jurassic Park sequel no, no, it was Jurassic Park because these two, they were being filmed concurrently. And apparently the, they, you know, the, the Super Mario producers knew that they had more sophisticated dino technology over at Jurassic Park. So they intentionally made the dinosaur stuff kind of cartoonish and fun. But apparently the um, one of the Jurassic Park special effects people came to visit the Mario Brothers set and were so impressed by Yoshi that yeah. they that they kind of develop some of the techniques from Yoshi, but unfortunately, Yoshi it and and it 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 does definitely bear mentioning that this movie is wonderfully wonderfully advanced in terms of special effects and you know the set design. You know, looking we look back at it now and it's not so impressive, but at the time they had sure. such a good team behind the scenes kind of constructing this thing and doing the effects and doing the dinosaurs and doing Yoshi. But they were, we have to also remember that they were limited in how much they could use Yoshi. You know, he couldn't be in every scene, unfortunately. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Because he didn't, they, they didn't have as much like mobility for him. They got the production designer from Blade Runner. David Snyder uh, yes. was the designer on this film. So, yeah, that's they were clearly going, you know, for a oh, certain yeah. effect. Oh, yeah. And, you know, I, I've been on the show twice before to discuss to, to discuss Congo and also to discuss Last Action Hero. Yeah. And one of the things that that I think you, you do a great job with on this show is sort of asking, is this movie cheesy badness or is it ahead of its time yeah. and and you know looking back congo is just cheesy badness you know it's <laughs> and it's in a very enjoyable way in a very you know hilarious sci-fi movie of the week kind of way it is just cheesy and craptacular um and i do i i've said it before and i still believe that last action hero was a film that was very ahead of its time it, it satirizes a a period in film that was not yet over. So people mm-hmm. weren't inclined to like it because they were still enjoying the films that it makes fun of. Right. Um, and so you watch, you watch last action hero now and you're like, dang, this was ahead of its time. And what's interesting to me about super Mario brothers is it really splits the difference it, in so many ways. It is ahead of its time, um, particularly in terms of the technology and the creativity, you know, and in choosing to add these creative elements to a video game storyline, 
But at mm. the same time, it is so cheesy and it is so yes. it is so weird and 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 just this melding of elements that do not belong together. Yes. Um, so so it really is kind of uh, the the on the line in between Congo and Last Action Hero. You've helped me realize something too, which is you know both of the movies that you mentioned that you were on the show to talk about before, and I think a lot of the other films on this show, the production design on a lot of those movies is is very well done. It's very detailed. They clearly worked very hard on it. And I don't know if it's a question of getting lost in the details or maybe trying to oversell something to an audience that doesn't necessarily want it. But, you know, Last Action Hero, I think, is meticulously designed in what they're trying to ape. And there's a lot going on in Congo, too. Somebody had to bake that sesame cake. Uh, So, yeah, I mean, you seem to you're always bringing me these films that were like these uh, these broad, you know, expansive imaginings that just didn't quite find didn't hit, didn't find their audience. Well, and I I think with with both Congo and with Super Mario Brothers, you know, we there's the expression that it's greater than the sum of its parts. These yeah. are films where the parts are much greater than the sum. That's, you have yeah. very talented actors. Um, you have very talented uh, behind-the-scenes people. The The soundtrack for Super Mario Brothers is fantastic. You know, <laughs> it is. It's interesting, and, though. I, I don't know why. They, they used a lot of popular songs from the time, but uh, they're all covers by other artists, which I found interesting, and I didn't know if that was an attempt to circumvent like licensing or if they just wanted to give you uh, maybe perhaps like an alternate universe's idea of these songs. I mean, who knows why anyone does anything in this movie? <laughs> but, but you know, they. What, what I mean is I think that there are interesting bad movies because they have so many great elements that mm. should have made a cohesive whole and for some reason, somewhere along the line, just completely did not gel. Yeah. Um, and, and Last Action Hero 2, it's a very detailed movie. You know, you have all these little all these little elements that are better than they strictly needed to be in terms of just background dialogue and the, the set design and the, the costumes that the, the women wear in, in the police office when Jack Slater visits, you yeah. know, <laughs> yeah. you had people who cared about making a good movie and yet oh, sure. you ended up with something so very strange. Yeah. Uh, I think critics would agree with you or with us on that note. There's an interesting phenomenon in the reviews of this film from the time. Uh, They were bad at the time, uh, but often on review aggregate sites on the internet like Rotten Tomatoes, uh, those scores slowly creep up as later internet reviewers are added to that consensus. People who are more open to genre picks or grew up watching the film. Uh, But even modern critics seem to hold the film as a punching bag still, and many outlets on the internet don't even cover it. So that's probably why it has no Metacritic score. Metacritic scores are almost all current coverage. But Mm. when the movie came out, Michael Wilmington of the Los Angeles Times said that it's a movie split in two, wildly accomplished on one level, wildly deficient on another. And he mentioned specifically the sheer density and bravura of the the production design. Yeah. I I think it's a terrible adaptation of super mario brothers the video game yeah um it just is at the same time i think it's a fascinating cyberpunk uh, entry in the cyberpunk you know subgenre. right right of, of, of the 80s and 90s it's that's a very small subgenre, um because by you know it didn't take too long before uh, i probably around the time of the net our understanding of what 
the <laughs> the technological dystopia was going to look like shifted yeah. dramatically. Um, but but for you know 15 years there, this cyberpunk thing was was huge, and this yeah. movie's a great entry in the cyberpunk catalog. It's just that <laughs> yeah. for some reason somebody also thought it should be a Mario Brothers movie. Yeah, it's almost like maybe get the Mario out of there and then see what we've got left. But uh, there's one guy who did say, <laughs> Hal Hinson of the Washington Post had good things to say about the movie. He praised the film uh, for its effects, of course, and he proclaimed, uh, quote, in short, it's a blast. And it's like, congratulations, buddy. You just made it onto the box for every release of this film from now until whenever. I mean, maybe that's, that's why he said it. Yeah, probably. Oh, no. That could be uh, the reason that he said that. Uh, the stars from the film have all been, uh, or for the majority, have been critical of their time on the film. Uh, Bob Hoskins famously was asked, uh, what's the worst job you've done? What's been your biggest disappointment? And if you could edit your past, what would you change? His answer to all three was fried green tomatoes. No, it was Super Mario Brothers. It was Super and, Mario Brothers. And uh, John Leguizamo has actually uh, enjoyed the uh, the fans' love or the some fans' love for the film. He did a, a video message message that you can see on YouTube for the film's 20th anniversary, uh, basically just having a good sense of humor about it and mm. uh, praising the fans that still love it. And there are a lot of fans that love it still. We mentioned, of course, um, the SMB Movie Twitter account and the website, who themselves have uh, apparently found a rough cut of the film on VHS that has almost 15 minutes of cut footage from the film, including extra scenes and alternate scenes. And they're looking to crowdfund a restoration of those scenes for a full release. So if you're interested in helping out with that, check that out. I would kickstarter the hell out of that. Yeah, I'd, yeah, I'd chip something into that. Why not? It's like the um, Superman 2, you know, when they recently did a, oh, a director's yeah, cut yeah, of that, yeah. Yeah. you know, and sometimes things are cut for good reasons and sometimes not. And unfortunately, the only way to know is to get to see it. Yeah, that's so true. I would absolutely watch watch a secret cut. And and I have read uh, positive, more positive quotes from Samantha Mathis, who seems to have a better attitude about about the film's legacy. Yeah, that was like her second film as an adult after uh, Pump Up the Volume, and so yeah, she which seems I like also she has... love. Yeah, it, it's worth mentioning though, and and I think it's important to note that technically, Daisy is a Din Disney princess. <laughs> that is that is absolutely correct. And I think that she has been robbed. She, frankly, should be getting to be in a lot more of those group shots. Yes. We right? got to guess. Get her up there. Uh, get the uh, alien baby uh, from uh, Alien, which I guess you've got a Disney queen in the queen mother, but the baby would be a princess. Okay. Yeah, we've yep. got to repatriate all these princesses. I agree. She And Sally from Nightmare Before Christmas. She Dr. Frankenfurter. the Pumpkin King. Right. Yeah, the Pumpkin King. That's right. She, I mean, she's maybe the Pumpkin Queen at the end of that film. Dang it. The, the, <laughs> the, we, we need to start, you and me, this is what we're going to do. We're going to start like a our own TV show on the Disney Channel that just follows the misbegotten Disney princesses. Like the ones no Disney would rather disavow. <laughs> the, the princess, yeah, forgotten princesses, uh, too hot for, for TV, too hot for Disney. No, 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 princesses. don't say too hot because... Then you're going to get a certain fandom that we do not want watching our show. <laughs> well, we want people to watch it. <laughs> no, not them. No. But uh, but no, I, I feel like there should be a disavowed Disney princess show. And Daisy would definitely be a major player. 
I think that's a good idea. I'm trying to figure out who owns Max Headroom. Oh, Warner Brothers. So that's in a few years, Disney will probably buy them too. So yeah, it's really only a matter of time. You just have to wait, and everyone will eventually become a Disney princess. Max Headroom was right, everybody. Blipverts are real. Uh, <laughs> you, <laughs> uh, as we uh, head to the end here, is there anything that you want to say? Anything that we didn't say? There's so much. I should say there's so much to say about this film, and I would absolutely encourage listeners to check out snbmovie.com uh, if you want to know more about the film. I don't know why, but Lance Henriksen is in this movie too. Yes. Yes, he is. He, and, uh, <laughs> he plays, and and please picture that word in quotation mark, marks. He plays the 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 king, the fungus king, Daisy's right. father. And yes. by plays, he has one shot that made the film, and yes. it is the moment where he's restored to human, and that's literally it. They got Lance Henriksen to fall into a chair, and then they cut away. Right. Yeah. Uh, so th that's just a little that's one of many blink and you'll miss it treasures. No of idea. The Super Mario Brothers. <laughs> no idea why he decided to fly to North Carolina to do that. But he met his wife on that film. She was a, Did a makeup he? or he was a makeup or a costume uh, assistant or, or person. Yeah. So good for him. Yeah, I guess somebody got something out of this movie, you know, at the time. <laughs> somebody did. Yeah. That's nice. That's good yeah. for them. Well, uh, that's it. Thanks for joining us, listeners. If you want to let us know how you felt about this movie, you can tell us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash craft to services. We're also on Twitter at at craft to service. And of course, the show's on Apple Podcasts and all those good places. Uh, subscribe, rate and review us on your platform of choice. We'd appreciate it. Melissa, where can people find you online? Uh, my website is melissafolson.com. Um, I'm also on Twitter at Melissa F. Olson um, and, and most of the social medias I can be sure. found under my actual name. And Boundary Haunted will be out in December. Where can people pick that up? December 3rd. Um, pretty, You can get it right away for your Kindle. You can order it on Amazon and you can order it from just about any bookstore if you if you walk in and ask for it. And that's it for us. The credits are rolling. This is Aaron for Melissa saying, trust the fungus. Mm -hmm.